Welcome to Dose of Support. We are an interdisciplinary show that highlights healthcare workers. We share stories and self-care in healthcare every week. I'm your host, Dr. Vanessa Casper, a nurse practitioner and a healthcare worker just like you. Remember, I'm not your healthcare provider. Our guests are not your healthcare provider, and we're not giving healthcare advice here. Seek out care from your own healthcare provider. This podcast, host, guests, and associated social media platforms are not representing an employer or organization. It's hard out there, so let's find some self-care in healthcare. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Huddle and to Dose of Support. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for being here. And if you're new here, have you subscribed? Subscribing to the show really helps the show grow. I cannot thank you guys enough for returning every week and supporting me and this passion project that I have. I really want to grow the show and make it this thing. And so help me do that. Subscribe, give me a rating, write a review. I need you. The show is nothing without you. Um, and our wonderful guests. So I am so excited to have Sarah B. Cruz on today because let me tell you how we just talked for a while, like well past the 30 minutes <laughs> that I normally do for our episodes. And we just had so much fun and she's a hoot. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. Update on me from last week. Yes, I'm still working on decision fatigue. It is like totally a work in progress. Um, I haven't bought a special journal, but I think I think I want to buy a special particular journal and I'm going to be doing some online shopping this evening so I'm going to work on that and then we did not get that house that we put an offer in on last week so if you listened last week we've been house hunting we saw three homes we put in an offer on one and apparently like we weren't even close because the house went for 30 grand over asking and y'all I'm just not going to overpay like that and I don't know who these people are are and what they do for a living but like I'm over here I thought I made decent money right like we in healthcare y'all know y'all know what kind of money we all make and I'm kind of like I thought that I made enough money for to buy a house but apparently these whoever these people are that like swoop in with to just put on top of asking like what do they do <laughs> like and maybe uh, like how can I do it <laughs> so it was a little um, frustrating because I thought our offer was really strong it was discouraging to find out that we weren't even in the running in the ballpark and here in the midwest it's you know it's the middle of winter so it's odd that the market would be moving that fast in the summer the, the market always moves moves fast because nobody wants to move like physically move in the winter and so it was really surprising to us that we had to like put up a fight so send well wishes this way because we really want to find the right thing and so it was discouraging but we're just gonna keep on looking and wait for the right thing to come along um so that's my update thanks for listening to the huddle and i hope you enjoy this episode with sarah b cruz stay tuned welcome back to dose of support 
Representation matters, and today we have a first-time professional gracing the show. She's an educator, a project manager, an entrepreneur, and a certified central sterile processing department technician. Here to share a story about being the patient herself and all the way from Connecticut is sterile tech, which I'm, I know I'm not saying that appropriately, is Sarah B. Cruz. Welcome, Sarah B. Hello, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I know. We've been connecting online, and I was like, I literally don't know what sterile technicians do, or SPD, it's sometimes called. So tell us there's a bunch of letters after your name. Tell me what that's about. Uh, So my formal title is Sarah B. Cruz, CRCST, CSPDT, which is just a bunch of letters for one big central sterile services nerd. I love sterile processing. We are vital to patient safety and patient care, even though we'll never meet them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I was thinking about this and I was like, where do you guys work? And so for for simplicity's sake, should we call you like a sterile tech or what should we call Like what's the like shorthand? A uh, sterile tech is fine. Okay. So where do sterile techs work? Uh, well, typically we work in a basement. Um, There's not usually windows because we use um, high heat steam in our autoclaves as our primary form of sterilization. So we have to be as close to the boiler system as possible to get the best water quality for our steam quality. So are you in hospitals? Are you in surgical centers? Um, Like anywhere that there's a surgery or a sterile like procedure being done? Vanessa, you nailed it. Anytime there's a surgical instrument or an instrument touching your body, a sterile processing tech has touched that instrument. So like even at the dentist, orthodontics, okay. Mm -hmm. Those little picks that go in your mouth, the (laughs) hygienist or the assistant. And sometimes when the dental facilities are bigger, they have their own dedicated sterile processing tech. So what I think is important is like on the show, we talk about patient care and like what we go through as frontline workers. And like you said, if you're doing your job correctly, like you're not going to see the patient ever, but your job is vital. So tell us a little bit, like what is a day in the life as Sarah B like? Um, Well, I can tell you that it is filled with a tremendous amount of coffee. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That is, that's a really big uh, perpetuator of Sarah B. Cruz, but I digress. Uh, The typical day starts, I don't have a set schedule because I am an educator, so I try to make myself available to all shifts. So I work a rotating schedule, but the typical day is I come into work. I go to OR huddle where we go over the day's surgical cases um, and we talk about turnovers and priorities for reprocessing instrumentation of the surgical cases for that day. We run our own department huddle and uh, the team and the department manager that I work in collaborations with discuss the day that we're going to have and what's priorities. And then we do the dang thing and all the noises that the machines make, it sounds like a very sterile symphony. Um, And you have autoclaves going off and washers dinging and the phone ringing and we're filling carts and doors slamming. And it's quite the orchestra down there when all the instruments are running. And uh, you do that 24-7. I have so (laughs) many questions. Like, how do you know how many instruments you're going to need for one case? 
Yeah, we use a process called forecasting. So we'll have the entire schedule printed out and our leadership will help us figure out what we need that day based on pick list and preference sheets by the doctor. So it'll itemize everything a doctor ever uses, all the way from disposable sutures down to that one single peel pack number three blade. Do you ever run out of instruments? Oh my gosh, that is the name of Central Sterile's game. We we the reason why priorities are so important is because we only have so much inventory um and we want to make sure we're maintaining the highest quality and care especially if those pa- the instruments are going to get reused again on a patient keep in mind that every instrument set in our facility despite the number has been used on another patient before you mm-hmm. which is why it's so important to follow our amy orn iOS standards because we have to make sure it's safe. So you just said a bunch of acronyms. Okay. So for the listeners, like the Amy, Orn, do you want to explain those? Those are certification boards that preset standards for patient care. So nurses follow them. um, And we work closely with the standards of best practice that nurses use because we want to assist them. So, okay. So you get the supplies ready for each case, mm-hmm. you make sure there's enough supplies so that everyone has what they need in, in the OR room. And then- And if there isn't, we turn them over during the day. So if a pan, if an instrument set was used on the first case and you need it for the third case and we don't have enough in between, we make sure we get it down in a timely fashion, wow. decontaminate it, assemble it, inspect it, sterilize it, and get it right back up like it was never missing. Wow. Okay. So mm. what? how long does it take to sterilize one piece of equipment? Or is it not that simple where like it depends on the piece of equipment? Yeah. It, generally speaking, it can take anywhere from two to three hours to fully process and re-sterilize in a single instrumentation set. But we're not putting them in one at a time. We're running giant loads mm-hmm. at, with at least 15 instrument sets minimum on these autoclave trucks. So anywhere between two to three hours. And you kind of mentioned it's not just that you're like cleaning the instrument. You're inspecting it. You're mm. Is there like a quality assurance like portion of your job? Yes. I literally didn't know that. That is so cool. Mm. Um, okay. So what is like the worst part of your job? It may sound silly, but not being able to have anything to drink on the floor. What? Tell me more. I know. Doesn't that sound silly? <laughs> but it's you don't realize how thirsty you get during the day until you have to completely leave the department and go to your locker to get something to drink. <laughs> so you don't even bother. So you're just this big, overworked, dehydrated mess come lunchtime. <laughs> so wait a second. Like when you're autoclaving and you're when you're in like the department itself, you can't have anything there with you? Yeah, you nailed it because it's a sterile environment. So while we're assembling, we have to make sure that it has the cleanest parameters ever. We have that de- we have designated environmental service individuals that clean our department by those standards. There's positive and negative air pressure depending on which side of the department you're in. And then when the instrumentation comes out of the sterilizer, it stays in the department on shelves. Mm -hmm. So our Mm -hmm. shelves have to be clean. So there's no room for food or water, no snacks in your pocket. You you cannot risk it. So I take it that you are in a full head to toe garb, kind of like 
people that are taking care of COVID patients would be in their PPE. I, I take it that you wear like some kind of ensemble when you enter the mm. department. Is that right? Yes. I love how you called it an ensemble. So <laughs> we, I wear these, well, I wear the splash resistant gown. I have a face shield. I wear a mask. I have double gloves. And that's the standard practice inside of decontamination. When I'm on the assembly side, I have scrubs that the facility gives me. So I'm not even allowed to wear my own scrubs into the hospital because the facility has to clean and monitor how the scrubs are processed and cleaned and given back to me because that's also in the standards. Wow. And just to like point out, like you, so this was your, your attire before the pandemic too, right? (laughs) Mm. Yeah. You know, when COVID hit, I think everybody just started thinking like sterile processing technicians. Everybody just kind of caught on on how gross people are. So (laughs) because our standards of practice and, and, you know, our baseline for preventative measures didn't change with COVID. We didn't process instrument sets any differently. Um, We still maintain the high level of disinfectant that's demanded of us for our patient's care. Um, So, you know, aside from, COVID, our processes and practices did not change. That's nice. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I'm just thinking how nice that that kind of is because I think a lot of people had a big change in their work life, like a big, you know, a lot of people like they they never had to wear masks, they never had to do all of that unless it was a really special situation. And your job kind of stayed the same, which is like reassuring. I don't know. It gives me, gives me hope. Um, Well, I just want to preface for a moment that I was very fortunate to be in a facility that did not furlough or lay off any of their employees. A lot of sterile techs didn't have that fortunate outcomes, you know, so our practices may not have changed, but, you know, travelers got furloughed. They weren't in demand because we are based on the influx of surgical cases. You can't do surgery without us, but if there's no surgery, we don't have too much to do, you know? So that's true. It's not all, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. It sounds like I, I know you're not alone in, in noticing that I, I have seen that hospital systems, health systems are laying off frontline workers. (laughs) Like, like, (laughs) You're kidding me, but then the CEOs are still raking in millions or more. Um, Mm. Okay, we digress. We're going to stop bitching about that. Um, (laughs) So what do you love about being a sterile tech? What is like the fun, best part of your job? Um, Personally, my favorite part is um, onboarding people into their career Our industry, even though it's been around a while, it's still very young, you know, and nurses have been around forever, Forever. you know, but it feels good knowing that I'm, my industry is going to thrive because of it. It sounds like you really like to teach, which is totally my jam too. There's so much more that I'd like to know about, but that's just my own curiosity. I think it's nice that we kind of know what you do, who you are a little bit, your background. I think we should take a break. And when we come back, I want to hear this patient story of yours. So everyone stay tuned.
Welcome back from the break. We have Sarah B. Cruz with us. She is our sterile processing department technician, project manager, educator, all the things. She's doing all the things. And she was the patient also. So Sarah B., lead us into that. I got to know what happened. Okay. So I want to say two years ago, oh my God, I can't believe it's been two years, but two years ago, I was actually a patient. And there's something that happens to you as a sterile processing technician. And I'm sure other interdepartmental professions can relate to this, where you're on the opposite side of the care that you usually give, right? It's almost like inception. You know, you don't know if the yeah. cop is going to fall over. I felt over that way when I, when I had a baby. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you totally get it. Mm-hmm. So uh, two years ago, I had two surgeries, uh, two months apart from each other. And so I got to experience the professionalism and care and dedication to their craft that sterile processing technicians have. So I remember uh, I had a gastric sleeve surgery and I was at work the day before my surgery because we were short staffed. So I couldn't really take the time off until right the day of my surgery. You know, kind of like how you're going to work on the day of your funeral. That's very much me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So so I was there and the technicians were talking to me. My team was talking to me. I wasn't an educator at the time. And, you know, Miss Jerry said, Sarah, do you want to pick your own case? And I said, no, Jerry. And she said, what? You don't want to pick your own case? I'm like, Jerry, you're way better at picking a robotic procedure than I am. Every time I pick a robotic procedure, Jerry had to come behind me to make sure I didn't miss anything. I am at hell no am I going to pick my own case when you're the best at it, right? So, so what does that mean, pick your own case? So like the pick list and the preference cards we talked about for the doctor, okay. they're generated based on a patient order. So my case was booked the day before. So the day before, it prints out the pick list that the doctor had already made. Mm -hmm. And then we sterile processing technicians pull the soft supply, like the disposables, and the instrumentation for it. And we put it on a cart, put a bag over it, and now it's all ready for the patient for the next day. So I literally watched Jerry pick my case and got to see every single instrument that was going to go inside of me while I was asleep. That's a little weird. I'm a little weirded out by that. I don't know if I'd want it. I don't know if I'd want that. Right. What would you do? Like, uh, like, I think it's so important to have an honest assessment. And, you know, I could have picked my own case. But really, what solace would that have gotten me? I, yeah, exactly. I was like, not I think good I at picking rather robotic not know. cases. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. I Yes, definitely. So that was one instance. And, you know, then I went upstairs. And because I have such a close relationship with the OR team, when they need stuff, they call me and I get it to them. That's my regular day is servicing the OR so they could service our patients on the table. Okay. So now I'm going into the OR and the person who is usually calling me for Kelly's and Schnitz and Alice's all day is now like, hey, so this is what's going to happen. And, you know, I'm in this gown and I'm naked underneath it. And he's being so nice to me. And he's like, don't worry, I'll take good care of you. And I was like, oh, my God, you're going to see me naked. Like, I talk to you every day. <laughs> oh, that'd be so weird. Oh, that'd be so weird. Uh. 
so so it was just surreal as again I'm laying in the bed with my gown on and I got a cap on and I'm waiting for like the iodine to dry on me like it's just it's just so interesting and it's just surreal when you know I got to experience that as a patient because I knew the professionals and I had cleared for them to come and talk to me because, you know, HIPAA is a real thing. And we sterile processing technicians respect HIPAA so much. So these patients, they'll never meet me like that. They'll never know that when I'm looking at that bandage scissor, that I'm testing it for sharpness, which a reality check. Bandage scissors are never sharp. We always have to replace them. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, that's a real thing. And they'll never know how hard I worked checking that set, making sure it got into the sterilizer. And I wasn't the first case that day. So I knew the stuff getting used on me was used already just before me that same day. Oh, that must just put a certain level of trust, like a huge level of like confidence in the team. And like, uh, almost like being able to let go and be flexible mm-hmm. in the moment. And I had that to right to – yeah, exactly. And I had that choice to make there. Our patients don't get that choice. They don't even know what's happening. Right. They don't – you know, so I have to be able to make sure that if they were given that choice, they would still choose it. Yeah. And that's where the passion for our profession comes in, for all sterile processing technicians. Despite burnout, stagnation, frustration, ugh, all those discouraging words, it's all about the patient. And it doesn't have to be my mother on the table for me to care. It doesn't have to be me on the table for me to care. What a huge impact you have, and it's just like unseen. Mm, it's very humbling. <laughs> oh, wow. It must be like it sounds like you you get a lot of like satisfaction, but like a lot of a lot of people want like glory and <laughs> do you ever see sterile techs in the media? Do you ever see representation anywhere else? Girl, if we're in the media, that means we're not doing our job. Nobody oh. knows what we're doing unless we're not doing it, you know. So <laughs> when they shut down entire facilities, um, for failing DPH or joint commission walkthroughs for, mm-hmm. um, you know, surveying for uh-huh. hygiene and best practices. It's usually because of issues in the perioperative services. Oh, okay? dear. So oh, dear. if that's the only time you ever hear of us is when we're not doing our job. So the less you hear of me makes me feel better. <laughs> I, I take it you recovered well from your surgery. Everything went okay. Yes, both of the surgeries went off without any issues. From the day-to-day, you are head-to-toe in an ensemble, mask, gowned up, like all the time, every day. That's like normal for you. Um, You work all sorts of shifts. You lead other people. You educate other people. You're precepting. you're, You're trying to – you're this unseen worker unvalidated until today. Um, How do you find the energy to keep going back? What do you do to take care of yourself? Oh, yeah. And self-care is something that I didn't really take seriously until 
until I turned 30. So for the last four years, oh my God, four years, I have really prioritized self-care. And I did that by creating firm boundaries. I mean, boundaries are hard. My boundaries present themselves in a way where I say no. Most of the time to myself because I have to come calm down. Okay. Just take it, take a step back. You know, you're a career woman. You get it. We're out here. We're hustling. We're doing our thing, you know, and I'm salary. So, you know, the American culture wants me to work myself to death because Mm -hmm. I'm salary. Like there's some glory in it and Mm -hmm. which I can totally appreciate all the hard workers out there, but no, I, I can't do it. So I really had to teach myself how to say no to the things that I wanted and that I could do them later. So I set physical boundaries, whereas I would time myself and allow myself to be on LinkedIn for only so long because that's work, okay? I'm networking on LinkedIn. I made emotional boundaries where I would say no, and then I would console myself afterwards saying that I'm not a bad person for prioritizing myself. I don't care less about the other person on the other end just because I'm recognizing what I need first. You're not a bad person if you say no. And mentally, I create boundaries where I stop myself with imposter syndrome. Um, I am very hard on myself and it's something I work aggressively towards and I do that by creating mental boundaries. So I'll start to spiral and, you know, suffer from perfectionism, procrastination masked as perfectionism. I didn't want to be perfect. I just couldn't imagine myself doing it any other way. So when I start to go into that mindset and I realize the triggers and the red flags, I stop myself immediately. I just, I'll stop whatever I'm doing, remove myself physically just for like two minutes so I can get back to where I need to be to actually do what I need to do at hand because if I'm not present, nothing matters. This is like active avoidance. Like when you, it's avoidance of a task mm. to make yourself feel better in the short term. Mm. Um, and it sounds like you have had enough self-awareness or you've cultivated some self-awareness to realize that you're doing this. Mm-hmm. And I like what you said about physically removing yourself. Like going for a walk for two minutes and then like coming back. A lot of people set timers. Like I know a lot when you think about people who write books, they'll set a Mm -hmm. timer to write for 30 minutes, then take a 10 minute break or whatever. Um, And it's kind of a similar concept where like you, the the light goes off that you're, you're doing this avoidance kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. And then you're, you remove yourself and reset I like that. Right. And, you know, let's be realistic. Sometimes we can't just physically remove ourselves. So I try to practice something called checking out to check in. And that's when I just stop and stay where I am and literally feel like I'm putting on noise cancellation headphones. And I just check back into what's important. Is what I'm thinking about actually what I need to be thinking about? Or am I just starting to spiral because there was a little mistake or whatever it was that sent me there? So I'll actively stay where I need to be, but I'll check out and then recheck in with what's at hand. Yeah, that's. I like what you said about that 
like the noise canceling headphones <laughs> because mm-hmm. I was just talking to my husband about like, have you heard of those um, s- like sensory deficit rooms? <laughs> like, yeah, you, I it's like oh. you pay to like go sit in a dark room <laughs> and like it's yes. utter silence, like solitary <laughs> confinement, but you pay for it. <laughs> um, but when you said that, it's like you are almost like a meditative state where like you are mm going within yourself, shutting it all down and doing a mm-hmm. reset. I like that. So, and it, and it just reminded me of like a noise canceling room. <laughs> exactly. And I'm really happy that you use the term avoidance because, you know, checking out to check in and creating mental boundaries can be masked as this whole like disconnecting. I'm not disconnecting. I'm still here. I'm still present. I'm just reassessing what does it need to be there so that I can focus on what's there. It's not like I'm watching something on Netflix and I'm completely zoned out. That's not what's happening. And so how do you learn? How, How did you learn how to do all of these techniques? Yeah, I mean, to be completely blunt, therapy. Yay! I go to therapy. You don't have to have something catastrophic happen to have someone to help you learn coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. or appropriate times and places to learn things and handle things. It's proactively taking care of yourself is one of the biggest things that one, we aren't usually taught Mm-hmm. And two, really isn't encouraged. Well, and we've talked on the show before about how therapy, first of all, it was, it used to be like really inaccessible. And mm-hmm. for some people, it still really is. That's awesome that you were able to use that as a tool to teach, to learn, to learn how to handle those feelings and emotions and situations and and to hit the reset button. And I'm guessing that didn't happen overnight. I'm guessing you've cultivated this over years. Oh, yeah. And that's <laughs> something I also teach in sterile processing. Like, don't compare your chapter one to my chapter 20. Yeah. It so it takes like a lot of personal perseverance. Maybe if people don't have access and they're hearing this right now, I'm kind of thinking you need to identify the problems, take a piece of paper, write down they're like maybe a top three problems that they would like to address. Um, And that's going to take some like self-awareness, some like self-reflection, like where am I, you know, how can I improve? Um, And we all have those areas, right? And and then the tools that you Mm -hmm. learned in therapy to combat that, how, how can people learn about that? Like what kind of tools are in your toolbox? Um, So the nice thing about my toolbox is that I actually take all the things that I've been fortunate enough to see the same therapist for six years. Okay, so that's really great to not have to therapist hop. But I take the things in my toolbox and translate them into professional milestones through my entrepreneurship. So anything in my toolbox, I make accessible on a professional basis for people to apply to their uh, job mentality. And then you sterilize your toolbox. So and then and then we've come full circle. Yes. Um, So Mm -hmm. we've talked about boundaries. We've talked about self-awareness. We've talked about um, identifying issues and applying strategies to reset. Um, And we've talked about a Mm -hmm. little known profession in sterile processing. If people are like, I love Sarah B. Cruz. I think that she's the bomb.com. 
or maybe they want to like get some of those resources that you talked about to apply the toolbox in their professional life, how can they find you? I am available on all the social media platforms besides Twitter. I just am too long-winded for the character amount that they allow there, so, <laughs> as you've all experienced today. No, um, so my webpage is www.pretreatcss.com. I'm available on Instagram at PretreatCSS. My latest and favorite thing is SpeakPipe, which is an audio recording format. So if you just want to leave me a little 90-second clip, that's at SpeakPipe.com backslash PretreatCSS. And I'm on Clubhouse. So if you got an iPhone, come hang out with me. Still processing professionals getting nerdy. Yeah, I mean, if you are passionate about what you do, go out and do it. Don't wait to get passionate about a job. It's never going to give that to you. Find passion in what you do. Stop waiting. Figure out your why. You are the real MVPs. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You can extend a dose of support even further by visiting us on Facebook, Instagram, on our website, or by giving us a rating or review. You can always support the show monetarily on patreon.com slash dose of support. Dose of support is written, organized, emails, edited, produced, published, all the things by me, Vanessa Casper, with exclusive music by John Schreier. I'm punching out this week but I will be back in your ears next week for another Dose of Support.